Welcome to Schneps Connects. I'm your host, Josh Schneps. We have a great show for you if you care about food and nightlife in New York City, which I hope all of you do. This episode, I will talk with Andrew Rigi, who is one of the biggest and most vocal advocates on behalf of the restaurant and nightlife industries of New York City. Many industries and businesses obviously have been severely impacted by COVID, but maybe none other touches as many people as restaurants and nightlife. With that, Andrew, thanks for being with us today on the Schneps Connects podcast. Josh, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I know the two of us met a couple of years ago, and I got to know that you have a long history of both being a part of the hospitality industry, as well as advocating on behalf of restaurants and nightlife establishments throughout all five boroughs. And back then, it was obviously pre-pandemic, we discussed the many challenges that business owners face in the industry. But obviously, that pales in comparison to the huge challenges they have today. I mean, I have to imagine that your job has taken on more importance now than ever. But I would love for you just to share with our audience a little bit about yourself and how you came into your current role, which is Executive Director of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Sure. Well, yeah, boy, I mean, I remember when we got together. It seems like uh, years ago, time, time's flown by. So, you know, I've always been in the industry. Going back to my great-grandparents, we had bakeries and cafes in Brooklyn and Queens. So grew up working there, uh, always worked in different capacities in the restaurant industry. And, you know, like so many other people, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do would probably end up you know, owning a restaurant or working in one, decided to go to culinary school. But then I learned, and this is in early, you know, 2000, that I also enjoyed politics and just kind of working with people and helping kind of navigate life with people that I could actually stay in the restaurant, hospitality, nightlife industry, but also be engaged in policy and advocacy and politics and helping people through association work. So I started working with the State Restaurant Association in the early 2000s, really just went door to door throughout the five boroughs, in and out of restaurants, no matter what the weather was, explaining to them the need to help organize and have an organization there to help provide them support and services and advocacy, and grew through the ranks there. And then in 2012, a lot of operators here in the city felt that it made sense for New York City's hospitality industry. So restaurants, bars, and nightclubs in the five boroughs to have our own separate independent voice in the halls of government and our own organization that could basically provide these types of support services and advocacy for them. So, you know, look, there's more than 25,000 eating and drinking establishments in the five boroughs. And the city council at that time was getting very active with all the rules and regulations of the restaurant and the nightlife industry. So we formed this organization. Fast forward now, we just had our eighth anniversary. We are in the battle for our life over the past seven months from COVID. So it's a great thing we had the organization and you know, now it's more important than ever. Well, you know, I've always given a ton of respect to uh, restaurant and nightlife owners because it is a 24-7 job. It just doesn't stop. And obviously, there's many regulations that they have to abide by. So I think, you know, it's critical at all times that they have someone to advocate on their behalf because they're just busy running their businesses. Um, yeah, precisely. Nights, weekends, holidays, you know, when your friends and family are going out to eat, drink, and celebrate, you're working. So it's uh, not for the fate to hard. It's really, 
an industry you need to have in your DNA to do it long term and to be successful. So you talked about 25,000, that number in terms of, uh, I guess, the restaurant nightlife establishments. Mm -hmm. Can you give a number just in terms of employment? Because I have to imagine it's, you know, all the, the, the busboys and waiters and bartenders. Yeah. So pre pandemic, there were more than 300,000 people working in New York City's food and drink places. And, you know, you have to understand, I mean, these are people from all walks of life. I mean, you have people that have fancy degrees that are in the industry, but you have people that are, you know, immigrants and came here and, you know, may not even speak the language. Uh, you speak English and have been able to get jobs in this industry. And that's really how it goes. I mean, going back to, you know, my great grandparents and so many other people families. It's just the nature of the business. And look, other people too, you know, formerly incarcerated, everyone. I mean, it, it is just a, a, an amazing industry because of the diversity. And unfortunately, here we are seven months into this pandemic. And out of that 300,000 plus, there's still about 150,000 people still out of work in the city in this industry. So it's a long way to recovery. And we need to get these jobs back because these jobs do reflect every sector of our population. And that's one of the strengths. And that's what's so beautiful, in my opinion, about this industry. We call New York City a melting pot. Well, that melting pot can be seen nowhere better than in the city's restaurant and nightlife industry. I love using numbers because it, you know, sometimes brings clarity to things. And you talk about that 300,000 number. I mean, you could put those people together and that's larger than many cities in the U.S. In terms exactly. of populations. So, you know, half of that to disappear in a short period of time is devastating. Sure. Um, but, but it's interesting to see a lot of restaurants are still investing in themselves Mm -hmm. by trying to take advantage of their outdoor space, building these structures. Some of them are, are really quite beautiful. And it's obviously them trying to get the patrons to enjoy outdoor dining, which I assume, you know, was not as hard as the weather, you know, was nice out at the end of the summer. But that's been extended through the winter. But do you think that that, along with the restrictions of the indoor dining, can sustain these restaurants? And what, what are the owners saying in terms of their expectations for people to eat outdoors when the temperature drops. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not one solution that's going to save the industry. So out of that 25,000 plus eating and drinking establishments pre-pandemic, there's about 10,500 that are participating in outdoor dining. Now that's amazing. I mean, 10, more than 10,000 restaurants and bars are doing outdoor dining is an incredible number. But when you put it in perspective, it's what, about 40% or so of those establishments. And it really depends on the restaurant. You know, if you're located on a corner and you can get seats and tables out on the street side and the avenue side, both on the sidewalk and in the roadway, you know, you have a better chance. And it was based on like the facade of your building. That's where you could set up the tables and chairs. We're trying to get a change so you can technically use like adjacent space. So if the landlord next door or someone says, you know, sure, set up tables and chairs, use it, help them get a little bit more occupancy. But it's not going to save the industry. You know, restaurants throughout the rest of New York State have been open and operating safely since back in June at 50% indoor occupancy. We finally opened up in the city of New York September 30th at 25% indoor occupancy. We were hoping to get to 50% in early November. 
We'll have to see what happens now. Hopefully these spikes in a couple neighborhoods of infections can get under control and we can continue to increase occupancy. But the truth is 25%, 50% plus outdoor dining, that's not necessarily going to save restaurants. Pre-pandemic, when restaurants had 100% indoor occupancy, it was difficult enough for them to survive. So we need support from all levels of government. There's a bill called the Restaurants Act that passed through the House. Hopefully the Senate and the President can pass and the Senate can sign it into law, which is a grant program to help pay for rent, utilities, payroll, vendors. All these expenses they've been racking up over the past seven months need to get dealt with and give us a little boom so we can do our best to survive. Even then, not every place is going to make it, but we need to do as much as possible. I keep saying we need as many policies from all levels of government to help as many small businesses in as many different ways as possible. It's kind of like throw everything against the wall and try to help as many as you can, but there's not like an overarching, let's do X and then boom these businesses are okay. Yeah, well, going back to the occupancy, I know it's a difficult uh, you know, thing to deal with because we obviously serve Queens and those areas of Little Neck and Douglas and on Northern Boulevard could almost look across the street at restaurants in uh, Nassau that were twice yeah. the occupancy. And that was you know, very difficult for them to really digest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the problem with all of this is that so much of it is being developed and made up as we go along. And there is no perfect scheme of how to put a policy in place. So people are trying to figure it out. There's a lot of stuff as we start opening up different sectors of the economy where people, you know, just feel like this rule is arbitrary. That doesn't make sense. Why is this person able to operate on this side of the street and I'm not able to on this side of the street? And honestly, they're very good and important questions. And that goes back to why we need government support because as all of this is rolling out, just the nature of the situation is going to be such where not everything's going to be perfect. So we need organizations like the Hospitality Alliance to make sure that the voice of restaurant and nightlife venues are constantly being heard. But we also need support from government because we have to recognize this is uncertain situation. And no matter what policies are enacted and what happens, people are going to be impacted in different ways. Some people are going to benefit, other people are going to be hurt. But a lot of who gets to open up, under what conditions, where and how, you know, it doesn't make sense to people. So talk about safety, because obviously making sure people feel safe is probably a big part of um, getting them to come into the restaurant, whether it's indoors or outdoors. So Share with us what specific measures have been taken by the restaurant owners that whether they were cited by the city or not is mandatory that mm. are helping patrons feel safe. Yeah. So, you know, public health and safety of your customers, of your workers, that has to be paramount. But we also have to start at some point, which we're doing, opening up the economy. And, you know, going back to the occupancy, whether it's 25 percent, 50 percent or even 100 percent, Are your customers going to feel safe coming into the restaurant? And are your workers going to feel safe? So the state had developed and released various protocols, and they are even more detailed if you're in the city of New York. Everything from, you know, temperature logs to collecting information for contact tracing, having tables six feet apart or using 
barriers using MERV 13 or better filters in your air filtration systems or keeping doors open or installing these standalone air filtration unit, you know, using PPP. So, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's actually quite difficult for restaurants who at the end of the day are small business owners on top of everything else trying to make sense of it. But I think overall they're doing a very good job. Some of the safety mechanisms and practices are happening behind the scenes. But I also think to give customers a sense of confidence and your employees when they're coming into work, there are things people are doing that you can see overtly to say, we're taking your safety into strong consideration in everything that we do. So, you know, you see people cleaning tables. Sometimes they come out with their spray bottles, disinfecting the tables. They give you hand sanitizer. You see the tables are spaced out. Sometimes when they bring you to the table, you know, they'll even, the host will even kind of give you a couple of pointers. You know, please make sure you keep your mask on while you're placing the order with your server, making sure if it's a restaurant where a lot of people come and pick up food, that people aren't crowding too much in the restaurant. So there's a lot of different things that are going on behind the scenes, but then also, you know, customer facing. Last thing I'll say on that is we worked with a group called Safe Eats, which is, you know, a group that has all these different safety protocols. They've created a, basically an app that sends regular updates to businesses. Businesses can reach out and get answers to different types of questions. And you have to meet all these different protocols and then you get a sticker in your window. Um, so there's different programs like that as well. Great information. You know, what fascinates me now is the evolution of the, the delivery business. You know, and obviously I'm sure the delivery becomes more and more important for restaurants that do it and pick up. But can you share a little bit about the relationship that exists between restaurants and, and what are really huge tech companies now involved in the order and delivery of uh, food? Yeah. So, you know, I say that the third party delivery app industry was a crisis before the COVID crisis. Um, mm. You know, delivery has become more and more of a critical revenue stream for restaurants over the past bunch of years, um, especially as it's gotten more expensive and more challenging to run a business, but also just the market demand. I mean, New Yorkers always love their takeout and delivery, and these companies have really helped, you know, build a market or an infrastructure to create more orders. The problem is there's been a very tough relationship, particularly with a handful of these companies such as Grubhub Seamless that have been able to use their market share really at the expense of your favorite local restaurant. And it's been an ongoing battle before the pandemic hit. There were city council hearings looking into the delivery market. Um, we had done some uh, press conferences with Senator Schumer because Grubhub and Seamless has actually charged restaurants bogus fees for phone call orders that never occurred. The fees can be up to 30% of each order. So That's sometimes funny. the third party delivery company is making more money off the order than the actual restaurant is. So there was a cap put in place on third party deliveries related to COVID. We're hoping that's made permanent. And listen, there's nothing wrong with third-party delivery. I mean, they provide a great service. The challenge is when you have so much leverage over the business, for example, you own their customer data. So if the restaurant says, I want to drop this third-party company, the company says, well, then you're essentially losing all your customers. 
they get their claws in you. You know, they set up these additional phone numbers and then use, you know, sophisticated SEO techniques by Google AdWords. So their website or their phone numbers come up before the restaurant's phone numbers, which means when a customer orders there, guess what? That third party company takes percentage. So I can really get into the weeds on it, but there's been a lot of challenges with it. Um, I think we just need a more fair and equitable marketplace. So just a very small handful of billion dollar companies aren't able to use their leverage and their investors willingness to allow them to burn through hundreds of millions of dollars in cash to acquire customers at the expense of the small businesses. I think it's something that can be done. It must be done. There's legislation to help it. And again, it's not something to say that delivery is bad or these companies are bad. It's just that's what the marketplace is. And we need to make sure that we create a fair marketplace, especially when our small businesses, our local restaurants are in such a dire situation. So as difficult as it is for restaurants, I mean, talk about how nightlight venues are holding on and what options do they even have to survive? Because that's a huge part of New York City is the nightlife. Yeah, you know, my heart breaks for everyone, particularly nightlife, because, you know, nightlife spaces are where we come together to be human, where we come together to socialize, to express ourselves. I mean, you know, just think of New York City nightlife and music venues, places like CBGB's launched new genres of music. You think about the Ramones and everyone else. And there's so many different examples from Bob Dylan, you know, to hip hop. I mean, you name it. And it's also a place where people come to find themselves. I mean, whether it's the LGBTQ community and the arts community and just every community. I mean, just people that after work want to go to happy hour with their friends, I mean, or a first date or whatever it is. So it's so important, not just to the economics of the city. We do know based on the city's Office of Nightlife study that came out in 2019, that the city's nightlife industry has an economic impact of, I think, $35.1 billion. So clearly vital to our economy. But the value of our culture and our humanity, you can't put a dollar amount on it. And they're tough because these are places where people want to be close. I mean, think of a dance club. Uh, You know, I don't know about social distancing dancing or a nightclub (laughs) or a little cocktail bar that's at 25% occupancy. Like that's not that environment. So there's going to be a long road to recovery because we really need full occupancy there. And so many of these businesses, they're not backed by big corporations. Like they were barely holding on before the pandemic. So it really impacts them. There's a save the stages bill again that passed the house of representatives, similar to the restaurants act, which I may have mentioned, which is a grant program to help business owners pay for their rent, utilities, these different types of expenses. So nightlife is really in tough shape. The one optimism I have on the restaurant, the nightlife side is I know these people. They're incredibly entrepreneurial. They're incredibly creative. They do this not just because it's a job. It's really in their blood. So they will keep fighting. And really, we need our government to provide us the support to stay afloat until we can, in a sense, get back to pre-pandemic operations. And we need to use this time to hopefully build back a stronger, better, more resilient restaurant and nightlife industry because the city doesn't recover 
unless the restaurants recover. I mean, think of our name, the restaurant capital of the world, or when it comes to nightlife, the city that never sleeps. How can we be New York City without them? They are true entrepreneurs, because I remember a lot of the people that used to sell tickets to parties in high school now run and operate some of the largest clubs in New York and Las Vegas, and they just started, you know, bare bones uh, organizing people together. Exactly, exactly. So what about this new surcharge? There, there's um, New York City will soon let restaurants add a, a charge of up to 10% to help uh, the restaurants during the pandemic. So what is your take? Do you think it's a good step or do you think it's one that potentially could hurt restaurants if they decide to enact those? Well, I think it's definitely a good step that the bill was enacted into law. There's a lot of backstory here. So part of it's just about general fairness of the regulatory environment. So restaurants in the city of New York were the only industry that were prohibited by law from charging a clearly disclosed surcharge. Every other industry is allowed to do it. People see it, whether it's your phone bill or you get into a taxi cab or they're all over the place. This was actually a 40 year old New York City Department of Consumer Affairs rule that was enacted all the way back then when it was a new agency for a completely different purpose. Apparently there was a spike in beef prices. And at that time, restaurants had those really big old heavy duty menus. Maybe they changed <laughs> once every 10 years. And because of the spike in beef prices, sometimes you'd get a, uh, your, your check and there'd be like $3 charge surcharge for beef because there's a spike in the market. So Consumer Affairs was a new agency. They put this rule into effect. And then 40 plus years later, it's still on the book, basically preventing restaurants from having the option of doing a clearly disclosed surcharge, which mind you is a practice that restaurants around the country are permitted to do, even around the rest of the New York state. You tend to see it in more progressive cities. You see it in Seattle, you see it in San Francisco, you've seen it in Chicago. Not all restaurants do it. It's an option, some place it works, some place it doesn't. So this is really just to give restaurants the same rights as every other industry and not be discriminated against. Now, with all that being said, this is temporary, it's not permanent, and it's directly related to COVID. We heard from a lot of restaurants that said, oh my goodness, I'm building, as you said, these beautiful outdoor dining installations. My employees, I'm trying to bring them back to work. I now have to buy all PPE, you know, gloves and masks and sanitizer. Uh, and we have all these other different types of expenses for compliance, filtration system. And they were really concerned that if they just simply raise their prices, that it is going to turn their customers off. You know, there's only so much someone wants to pay for a burger or a bowl of pasta. So the COVID recovery charge doesn't have to be the full 10%. It could be 3%, it could be 6%, the restaurant chooses. And, you know, if it helps them bring in additional revenue to help keep their business open and keep people employed, then I don't see why people should be opposed. I know some people say, oh, I don't like it. Well, you know what, if they don't like it, let it be known to the restaurant. And if it doesn't work there, the restaurant will stop using it. But I think uh, if some small business owners think that this could really help them survive, you know what, Let, let's do it. It's something that's temporary. These people have been hurt so bad. And, uh, you know, if they use it, great. If they don't, that's no problem at all. But just like they make a decision whether or not to raise a menu price or make some other business choice, this is a choice. Do I use the surcharge or do I not? Well, it's interesting that you gave that background, which I wasn't aware of or where it stems from. And that's good that you shared that. 
you know, I think obviously restaurants, nightlife, I mean, it's overall a huge part of the fiber and culture of New York City. But I think it also makes up a huge part of really every single major retail thoroughfare. Because if you look at whether it's 30th Avenue in Astoria or Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, large majority of these thoroughfares are bars and restaurants, banks, or real estate as retail has really moved online. So, you know, without restaurants, where would New York City real estate be? And, you know, what has the feedback been from the real estate industry or government on rent relief? Because I, I believe from your statistics, you had shared that 87% of restaurants couldn't pay their full rent in the month of August. Yeah, we've been conducting this study almost monthly. And in August, we surveyed about 500 restaurants and bars in the five boroughs. And that's right. 87% were unable to pay any or only paid partial rent and only one out of 10 of them renegotiated their lease. And I'll get back to that, but you're spot on. I mean, restaurants really are, including bars, the anchor of our neighborhoods. You know, mm -hmm. they are on our thoroughfares. When you look at all new developments over the past decade or so, you know, restaurants are part of it. You know, it's just the way our society continues to evolve. People want experiences. Even the retail stores that are around have kind of pivoted and incorporate food and beverage options, whether it's like a clothing store or the coffee shop or a barber shop where you can have a cocktail or, yes. you know, a hotel where there's more locals eating and drinking there in the restaurant hotel or the hotel restaurant than people who are actually from out of town staying in the hotel. So they are the anchors of our neighborhood. And I remember in like March and April riding my bike around the city and that's when there was the shutdown and you'd drive down, ride down these blocks and at night they were pitch dark and it was creepy, it was unsettling, places were getting dirty and you realize that it was because the restaurants and the bars were not open. The streets weren't bright. There wasn't activity outside. So really what I said earlier, going back to we need this industry to recover for our city to recover, it's true. And one of the challenges for these businesses have been the rent. And now it's the rent more than ever because they've been unable to pay. How do you pay 100% rent when you're open at 25% occupancy? Right. <laughs> you know, you, you just can't. So it's been a struggle. The governor has a moratorium on evictions, which has been critically important. The city council and mayor enacted a law and extended it that suspends the enforcement of personal liability guarantees and leases, critically important, meaning that if you're unable to pay your rent, you know, you may lose your business, but at least the landlord can't go after you personally, mm -hmm. which you know, it would be devastating if you not only lost the business, but lost your personal savings and assets. So it's been a tough issue. But I think at the end of the day, we are in this together because landlords are going to need tenants. You know, if we can't save our restaurants in our neighborhoods, the whole value of their portfolio and their properties are going to go down. And you know, we need more rent relief. I mean, this has been the problem. The moratorium on evictions, very important the suspension of personal liability guarantees, very important. In fact, they are artificially keeping so many small businesses open, but we need the federal government to act. We need the Restaurants Act, the Save Our Stages Act to help pay this back rent. And then we need incentives to negotiate new leases moving forward that make sense in today's environment. And what a lot of restaurants would like to have is moving from a you know monthly base rent 
to a percentage rent lease, meaning that the landlord gets a percentage of a business's sales. And that way you're more in a partnership. That and, sounds like a mall, it's almost like the mall model. Yes, yes, very much so. And early on in this pandemic, actually, we did a little research and it was interesting. And back in the New York Times archives, you saw a lot of businesses and landlords tried doing this during the Great Depression. And in fact, one of the articles I read said that the landlord ended up making out better under the percentage rent lease than under the market rate lease, because at that time the market dropped and the businesses eventually came back and they did a lot better than expected. And hopefully that happens there. And then everyone makes more money. But I also think it changes the dynamic. It's less, I'm the landlord, you're the tenant. It's more like, I'm the landlord, I'm the tenant. We're coming together. We need this business to succeed so we can both make money. Well, I guess it's a balancing act too, because on the real estate side, there's probably a massive difference between somebody that's owned a building for 10, 20, 30 years versus someone that may have bought it within the last five years. So, yeah. uh, you know, that, that probably is a tough balance too, because they're responsible yeah. for paying their mortgages and the real estate uh, market has just, you know, continued to climb before the pandemic every year it was kind of just like the stock market kept going up. Yeah. And listen, if you bought a building, you know, to prime years, you know, whatever it was 2015, whenever at the height, you know, or whatever the height of the market was, you have these big obligations. And I know, you know, you have, you know, provisions in your mortgage agreements that you may not be able to take rent from a tenant that's less than X dollars. So they may have to be able to renegotiate with, the banks. And again, what I've been saying from day one, and it hasn't happened, is, you know, it's for people to dance here. We really need the government to bring the landlords, the banks, and the commercial tenants to the table and figure out what are we going to do here? Because we can kick the can down the road, but at some point, we as society are going to have to recognize, and it's not much different on the residential side either, that people are not going to be able to pay back rent and they're not going to be able to pay the pre-pandemic rents anytime soon. And unless we do something as a society to address this issue, you could see defaults throughout the market. And at the end of the day, what's going to happen if that happens? The banks are going to go to the federal government and something's going to have to happen because right. we just can't let society you know, fall out and kick out tens of thousands of businesses and hundreds of thousands of residents. Uh, you have complete chaos. So there's an economic, but I think also a moral responsibility for us to address the uh, rent crisis in thoughtful and meaningful ways. Well, Andrew, it's been a great conversation. I have one last question for you, but I do want to commend you because, you know, I, I communicate with a lot of advocates and I can tell how hard you are fighting for um, restaurants and bars and nightlife institutions and you know, you've accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. Still, I know you're fighting for a lot more to come, but I just want to say um, how much respect I have for what you've been able to accomplish during this pandemic, because a lot of people are hurting, but I think being organized and, you know, getting the facts out there is critical to an action. It means the world. Thank you. We're, 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 we're fighting hard and we won't stop fighting, but really appreciate your sentiment and words. What can our listeners do if they want to support, support local restaurants? What can you say in terms of closing out what you would say to the general public? You know, everyone's having a tough time, but if you can, go out, eat, 
drink, support your local restaurants, leave good tips. You know, if you're not comfortable going indoors, eat outdoors. If you're not comfortable going out or you are, you know, order in instead of ordering through the third party apps, try to find the actual restaurant's phone number. If there's a 212 number or 718 number or 646 or 917, you know, make sure you're ordering direct. Go to that business's actual website, not a third party website to order. Then they pay no fees or much lower fees. And I think just getting out there and figuring out, you know, ways to support buying gift cards helps, you know, there's not going to be one thing they can do. Just get out there and support the businesses. And because, you know, you live in these communities and you understand how important they are to your neighborhood contact your elected officials and just urge them to keep enacting policies that are going to help your local businesses because it may not be your restaurant that you own but you know if it closes down you're gonna feel it and i think you see that from people like just they're sad when you know they lose their beloved restaurant or diner or bar so uh you know support them in every way you can eating drinking take out, buy gift cards, leave good tips. Um, you know, every dollar helps. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. And I look forward when the two of us can have a drink together. Oh, I can't wait. Hopefully sooner than later, my friend. Keep up the good fight. Have a great day. Thanks thank so much. You.